Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Tuesday, March the 2nd. I'm Tom Tilly and Annika Smethos, I had a dream about Donald Trump last night. Tom, you need to give it up. He's gone, mate. <laughs> well, he actually spoke at that conservative rally in America yesterday, so maybe that's what brought him back into my mind. But we were at a restaurant, but it was a restaurant where you had to line up and order your own food, like a bistro, and we're just chatting. He's like, oh, you can't even mention hydroxychloroquine. I'm like, you're ridiculous. And then he, he knew all the nightclubs in Sydney. Anyway, it was a pretty weird chat. Um, (laughs) All right, let's get into it. Today, we're going to brief you on the gang violence threatening Sydney. There are, you know, generational blood ties that go back to these types of arguments that have occurred for many, 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 many years. A former detective speaks to us about where police have gone wrong. We took our foot off the head of the snake and we need to put it back on. Yeah, an insider speaking out there on the briefing. First, let's get into the big news of the day. Former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has weighed in on what should happen now a Cabinet Minister has been accused of an alleged historic rape. Well, I think the ball is really in the court of the Minister concerned. I mean, he knows who he is, everyone knows who he is. He may well have known about these allegations for a long time. So there's a lot of questions to be answered. But, you know, I think for the sake of his colleagues, the government, everybody... He should front up. Malcolm Turnbull was speaking to the ABC and he said that MPs could use parliamentary privilege to out the person involved. Now, the allegations stem from 1988 and the alleged victim actually took her own life last year. The allegations rose again on Friday uh, when an anonymous letter detailing the allegation was sent to the Green Senator, Sarah Hanson-Young, Labor Senator Penny Wong and the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Scott Morrison says he passed that on to police He's also spoken to the accused Cabinet Minister. Have you asked him if he denies those allegations? Yes, I have, and he absolutely does. Categorically. That occurred last week. Last week I became aware uh, of a a set of documents that had been circulated. I had a discussion with the individual, as I said, who absolutely rejects uh, these allegations. The alleged perpetrator is one of 16 male ministers in Scott Morrison's cabinet. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see where it goes from here and how the Prime Minister and the Minister involved handle this. Also in Canberra, the federal government will spend half a billion dollars on immediate measures to fix the aged care sector following the release of a damning Royal Commission yesterday. The report comes after a two-year investigation The main recommendation is that home care packages should be approved within one month of the date of a person's assessment with plans to clear the waiting list. There's also a call for better care-to-patient ratios. And if that story brings up any issues for you, you can call Lifeline 13 11 14. And more human remains have been found by members of the public as the search continues for missing businesswoman Melissa Caddick. There have been several discoveries in the past 10 days since her decomposed foot washed up on that south coast beach. So the latest discovery, body flesh, was found on Sunday near Kalbara, which is near Nowra on the south coast. It's the third body part to turn up since the shoe was found. So far, only the bones have been confirmed as not belonging to Caddick. They belonged to an animal. And bad news for young people trying to crack the housing market. Australian house prices are surging with their sharpest monthly increase in almost 20 years. According to CoreLogic, there's been an overall increase of 2.1% across Australia in just the past month. Sydney and Melbourne are leading the charge, but all capital cities and the regions this time are also experiencing a jump. It's spurred on by a combination of record low mortgage rates, improving economic conditions, government incentives and low advertised supply level. 
And with the RBA promising to keep rates low for the next three years, I can't see how it's going to change, Tom. It's going to be an interesting one. There's already some economists saying that the RBA might have to put up rates, but if they put up rates, our currency would go through the roof and it would really damage our exporters. So I can't see them really doing that. They've been promising to keep them low for three years. So I imagine we're going to go through a massive surge in house prices. Some sneak peeks from Harry and Meghan's 90-minute interview with Oprah have landed. A couple of trailers have been released. Um, This is a week before the interview actually goes to air in full. That'll happen on Sunday US time, our time Monday. Were you silent or were you silenced? I just want to make it clear to everybody there is no subject that's off limits. Almost unsurvivable. Sounds like there was a breaking point. Sounds like an interview with just Oprah at this stage. But look, (laughs) Harry goes into more detail speaking about his late mother, Diana. I'm just really relieved and happy to be sitting here talking to you with my wife by my side because I can't begin to imagine what it must have been like for her going through this process by herself all those years ago because it has been unbelievably tough for the two of us, but at least we had each other. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how people respond to this interview. I mean, it was strange, I thought, Annika, seeing them sitting there with... Oprah, it kind of looked a little bit trashy for a royal to be doing that. Yeah, part of the mystique around the royals is that they don't actually answer questions. I've been able to meet some royals and you get told, you know, let her ask them questions. So <laughs> this is really, really unusual. There's been a bit of criticism in the UK already because Prince Harry's uh, grandfather, Prince Philip, is actually in hospital at the moment. He's having a bit of a tough time and there's been criticism that this wasn't necessarily the best time to perhaps do this interview. Yeah, and I still don't quite get the logic of leaving England to avoid media scrutiny and then doing a Netflix deal, a Spotify deal and an interview with Oprah. It kind of seems like you're working with the media. I guess the argument might be that at least they have more control over this betrayal. Yeah, and we do know the British tabloids are a particular kind of tabloid too mm. and they obviously think that they can get a little bit more of a normal life in LA. All right, in a moment we're talking gang violence. There's been three high-profile shootings in Sydney just this year that have people really worried about a wave of gang violence. Two of them involved innocent bystanders, which is always really alarming. A nurse was injured after being shot at. The wrong guy was shot dead after a boxing match in one of the incidents. And the third one was a senior gang member, but he was brazenly shot while just sitting in his car. And the other alarming thing, Annika, is that this was all in the space of a few weeks between late January and mid-February. So in this briefing, we wanted to find out, is Sydney on the cusp of an underbelly-style gangland war? And what are the police doing to keep people safe? Ryan Jeffcoat's a former police detective who is out of the force now, so he's speaking very freely. He was part of the former Middle Eastern Organised Crime Squad for seven years. Now, that squad was disbanded in 2017, and as you're about to hear... Ryan thinks that was a mistake. Ryan, thanks for joining us. What worries you about these recent attacks? The main concerning factor is the brazen nature of them. The shooting that involved the the nurse being struck by ricochet or glass is very concerning. That just, um, I guess, identifies and highlights the indiscriminate nature that these offenders deploy when when they're involved in this sort of criminal activity and, you know, not really too concerned with their main target obviously very ill-disciplined with firearms and weapons. 
So do these incidents suggest we're on the verge of a, a, a big sort of warfare between these opposing groups or is it just, is it always bubbling along? I guess I wanted to contextualise how bad this is compared to the ongoing violence we see between these gangs. I don't think it's, uh, we're on the verge of, a, of an all-out war. I mean, this type of behaviour is nothing new to the to the New South Wales Police. I mean, you look back to the late 90s, early 2000s when Commissioner Maroney established uh, Task Force Grapple that eventually morphed into Task Force Gain. You know, it was dealing with predominantly Middle Eastern crime in southwestern Sydney in and around the Punchbowl areas and Bankstown. And that, from there, you know, Task Force Gain formed into um, the Middle Eastern Crime Squad in 2006. So there's always been a recognition that this type of offending behaviour is core to that demographic of people and demographic of criminal. I mean, there is always a chance that if it's not jumped on, and immediate action is not taken, that it can result in more public displays of, of violence, definitely. You mentioned the Brothers for Life gang and that being a major factor a few years ago. In relation to these latest shootings, we're hearing about the Harmsey and Alamadine families. So who are the key players here? What, what are the divisions, the tensions and, and the key players? Well, the Harmsies and the Alamadines have been at each other for as far back as I can remember. You know, when I came out and, and joined the police, I first started in Auburn and the Alamdine family and the Hamsey family were on opposite sides of the fence then. The difference between then and now is that the offending back then wasn't so overt. So what we're seeing now is we're seeing a lack of um, appreciation from these families in terms of the consequences to their actions, in terms of, you know, they're not at the moment fearful of conducting their business in a public environment. As far back as 2004, you would see this type of offending behaviour, but it would be kept very covert. You know, things would happen a shooting might occur and we, yeah, the police might not be notified for maybe 24, 48 hours till after the fact. They've become definitely more brazen in their offending and it really comes down to that that power vacuum. When Measured Hamsey was um, shot and killed, that was a very big shot across the bow. I mean, Measured was a was a significant player in the organised crime world, particularly within the Middle Eastern organised crime world. He had a lot of contacts both locally and internationally. A lot of it involved drugs, a lot of it involved standovers and extortions, and a lot of a lot of it involved gunmen for hire. So taking out a major head of a, of a organised crime family is definitely going to create a significant power vacuum. So where do these families come from? What's the background? Uh, to the best of my recollection, you know, most of these families are actually born in Australia. There is obviously generational blood feuds between, from my understanding, between the Hamseys and the Alamedines that go back to uh, their families when they were overseas in, in Lebanon. Uh, and that's one of the areas too that you know people need to have some understanding of, that this is not just a, an organised crime thing. It, yes, it predominantly involves drug turf and the, the control of commercial amounts of drug supply, but there's also you know the, the ego aspect into it, which is another driving, major driving force of it. You know, they don't want to be seen to be losing face in front of their, their people on their side of the camp. But there are, you know, generational blood ties that go back to these types of arguments that have occurred for many, 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 many years. Given that ethnic element, um, as you say, compared to, say, an outlaw motorcycle gang who uh, who will bond over different things, how do police deal with that? What sort of, I guess, tools do you arm yourself with to really understand the ethnic element of these crimes? That's a, good, that's a very good question. 
policing OMCGs and policing Middle Eastern organised crime, in my experience, is, is, is two completely different worlds. I mean, OMCG policing is needs to be predominantly high visible. You know, it needs to be targeting on every level in terms of their modes of transport, interacting with them, with their taxation issues, you know, with them hiding income, things like that, being very overt with them, like he's wearing their colours in, in public, you know, riding on gang rides, these uh, church meetings that they go to or their clubhouse meetings, interacting with them on all aspects of that. The Middle Eastern organised crime is a lot like, I guess it's very akin to a mafia-type structure. You know, they have a, a head of the family and then underneath them they have a, a run of lieutenants and captains and each one of them has a run of their own soldiers that go off in different angles and different areas and, and manage different aspects of the criminal network, whether it be firearms, drugs, extortion, assaults, that sort of thing. So two very different models of policing. What do you make of the the response of the New South Wales police to the current problem? We saw in February they announced a standalone Raptor squad. And, and for a lot of us, we don't understand the difference between squads, task force, strike force, that kind of thing. So what does this new Raptor squad mean? How, and how does that compare to, say, the Middle Eastern task force you were a part of or the old Raptor strike force? I think, first of all, the appointing of Jason Weinstein as the commander of, of the new Raptor squad is a very smart move. Jason's got extensive experience in targeted organised crime, particularly Middle Eastern organised crime. He worked at Middle Eastern organised crime as the commander of the Uniform and Target Action Group for, for a long time. But I think it's also a, an admission by the commissioner that they got the call wrong in 2017 to, to wind up Middle Eastern organised crime squad. The model at Middle Eastern crime squad worked for 11 years. You know, it was formed in 2006 and it, it worked. I mean, the only reason most of the people in the New South Wales Police that worked at Middle Eastern Crime Squad, believed that the squad was disbanded, was predominantly because of the name of the squad. It was very It um, sounded unpopular. racist, basically. Is that, the, is yeah, that it, what it, the problem was? Well, it does. That was a lot of the feedback, that, that it was racist. But the model of policing worked. To understand that type of crime, you understand the need for a standalone squad targeting the Middle Eastern organised crime, because it's a very secular crime. They, I mean, the crimes committed upon themselves, you know, they target their own demographic of people, they are very insular in how they commit the crime and it's very hard to break into that that network in, in terms of developing informants and, and things. So you need a very specific target group of police that just focus solely on that type of offender, that type of crime. The new Raptor squad that's been developed, from what I understand, essentially MEOPS 2.0, it's an admission that... You know, we took our foot off the head of the snake and we need to put it back on. Now that it's been restructured, do you think we are going to respond to it in the right way? And and what does that actually mean? What is the practical reality of responding to this type of crime and these kind of criminals and their particular structure? I think we will get back there, um, particularly under Jason Weinstein. The model will be very basic, will be very similar to what we did at Middle Eastern Crimes. Got to be targeting. I read his commentary the other day in the media about uh, lawfully harassing these offenders, and that's correct. So every time they drive their motor vehicle, they're going to be specifically targeted. Their motor vehicles will be known. Their associations will be known. Their times they go to the gym, the times they leave the gym will be known. You know, they're the types of things that we did at Middle Eastern Crime Squad. If we were targeting a particular offender, we would know exactly their daily movements, their nightly movements. We would know where they would associate with their offenders, where they go to the gym, where they go to the doctor. 
you know, we know where the solicitor's offices are. We know everything about them and we target them lawfully. You know, if they commit a traffic offence, if they go through an intersection, don't, don't indicate. They get pulled over and interacted with. The Raptor might take over and lead investigations that might come to the notice of other police. For instance, if um, these offenders travel up or down the coast and say they're involved in assault in a local hotel, the old Middle Eastern Crime Squad or the, the new Raptor Squad will come in and take over that investigation and lead it and prosecute it to its nth degree. This is where the critics might jump in and say this is where it becomes racially profiling. If someone's seen as part of this ethnicity that they get jumped on for very s- small things. It's not racially profiled, it's, it's criminally profiled. If they commit crime, they'll be targeted. It's as simple as that. Do you think um, it's time that we looked at bail and the legislative side of this so that police can monitor and surveil these people and act before a crime is committed? If you get into the very nitty-gritty of what we used to do in terms of our covert investigations, you know, how we could deploy surveillance devices or telephone intercepts, you know, covert search warrants, controlled operations, things like that. It's a very quick-moving process. There's nothing really obstructive about that. It just comes down to the experience of the police to be able to decide when to deploy those strategies. But I think what needs to have a real conversation is about the response of the courts and the punishment of the courts. Because most of these people that are involved in these crimes uh, and these and these families, they're entrenched in it, you know, and they've been before the court multiple times for serious crimes. I mean, in, in the state of New South Wales at the moment, you could supply commercial amounts of um, prohibited drugs and receive a very minimum jail sentence for three or four years. I mean, I only read in the newspaper this morning about this gypsy joker biker that uh, did horrific things to a, a de facto of his and, you know, taped her to a pole and bashed her and assaulted her and shaved her head off and he got four years of jail. I mean, what, what message does that send from the courts to the community? That was Ryan Jeffcoat, former New South Wales police detective, speaking quite freely there, Annika. I thought it was quite interesting what he said about, I guess, political correctness and how that may have actually inhibited the police from doing a job that's really about keeping us safe. Especially the way he explained that those ethnic groups and their structures are really unique and need to be tackled in a particular way. And then, of course, yes, that does relate to their race. Their ethnicity is deeply involved in, I guess, the makeup of the crimes they're doing and the disputes they're having, as opposed to what he said, motorcycle gangs, which still commit crimes or other bad people, but do it on different lines and are motivated by different things. So obviously the ethnicity part is really important of this type of policing. So I guess we'll watch closely whether this new Raptor group can actually rein these criminals in and keep the public safe. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we're taking a look at the recent sexual assault scandals and how they're rippling through the school community. Listener.